Okay. Well, this morning we are starting a new series. I'm excited about it. So if you have your Bibles, uh, or if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have one, open it to the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm entitling this series, Under the Sun. And I'm excited to get into this book because this book has been so profound in my own life. It has been something that has struck me in the raw honesty of the book. You know, if the things that Solomon wrote in this book of Ecclesiastes were written in another article today in Rolling Stone magazine, uh, you would find, or some op-ed piece, you would find it just relevant to the things that we think and feel today. And a little bit of history, I mean, Solomon was the son of King David. Now, have you ever been in the shadow of someone? Any of you have older brothers or sisters that you kind of lived in their shadow? I had a stepbrother who's four years older than I, and he went to the junior high school that I later went to. And when he was in ninth grade, he, he caused a, a lot of interest. Um, he basically called his PE teacher names and his PE teacher slapped him one time. And, and then it so happened that I had the same PE teacher. And I remember the PE teacher saying, do you have a brother? And I said, yeah. And he goes, is it Tony Scotty? And I said, yeah. And me, I was in seventh grade at the time and thinking, well, that's great. He knows my brother. And he just looked at me and then walked away. And I thought, that wasn't good. And so I asked my brother what it meant, and he told me what names he called the teacher, and that that teacher slapped him. And I thought, oh, thank you very much for that. Um, but fortunately, I, I was not in the same situation as my brother was, at least not yet, in seventh grade. Come eighth grade, I, I joined him soon. But living in the shadow of someone can be a difficult thing. And Solomon lived in the shadow of King David. King David, the, the shepherd boy that became king. The shepherd who, who fought and killed the lion and fought and killed the bear. The, the younger brother who went to the army to bring cheese out to them and supplies and saw the giant Goliath taunting the army of Israel and went out with five stones and slew the giant. David, who became the king, who had conquered armies and then had poems and songs written about him. King David, who wrote songs that the nation sang. And so not only was he a, a strategic genius, a military power, a, a warrior that was feared and revered, but he also had a sensitive side and played the harp. He was like Kobe Bryant and Bono in one. And everyone knew David. He was a self-made man. 
Solomon did not have to earn any of these things. He had them all just handed to him. And so he's living in his father's shadow in this way. And we see that he has to earn these things himself. And I kind of want to look at the beginning of where Solomon started. Because Solomon wrote three books. He wrote the Song of Songs in his younger days, which is basically a romance kind of story, song. It's actually very erotic. We don't say that in church, but I just did. Um, that was something he wrote in his youth that has this vitality to it. Then in the middle years of his life, he wrote some 3,000 Proverbs in the book of Proverbs. And then at the end of his life, he wrote Ecclesiastes. But at the beginning, if you turn to 1 Kings chapter 3, we see that when Solomon starts to come on the scene as the king, he starts out in a very powerful way. Starting at verse 5, it says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Now, isn't that something we always wish? Oh, God, if I could have anything, if God were to say, whatever you want, give me, or I'll give you. And, our, you know, that probably would be our most self-indulgent moment. It'd be like the genie granting us three wishes, and I'd want three more wishes to be the last one so I could just get it all. Am I being too open here? Uh, you know. I mean, it would be the opportunity to ask for wealth, for fame, for power, whatever those things. And so God says to him, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Now, just a little side note. God has said those things to us. In Matthew 7, you can read that. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in a place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And ever since this story, people have been asking for wisdom, hoping that God would give them the other things as well. 
but it doesn't work like that. In verse 14, it says, And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized he had had a dream. And so Solomon, at the beginning stages, recognizing that he is in a place that his father created that is beyond his ability, asks God for wisdom to govern God's people. And God is pleased that he cares about the people and he gives them not only wisdom, but he gives them wealth like no other king. And he gives them the things that he did not ask for, but it does not come without a price or it does not come without a responsibility. In verse 14 he says, and if you walk in my ways. You see, it's important that we recognize that there is still responsibility, that there is still the need to make the right choices. And so Solomon has not given just a, a free card that has no responsibility. It is including this responsibility, and if you follow my ways as your father David did. And so we see that there is a responsibility. There still is the choices that Solomon needs to make in his life as he grows older and as he continues in this way, just as his father did. And, and right after this, after God has given him this wisdom, we see actually an illustration of this wisdom. We see it kind of come to bear in the following verses. And if you go down just a few more verses, or in verse 16 through the end of the chapter here, it says, Now, Here's a famous story that we have the account of. Two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, My Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead baby, dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son, the dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours, the living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. The king said, this one says, my son is alive and your son is dead. Well, that one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order. Cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Now, if it ended there, this would, <laughs> this guy's not too bright, okay? But it doesn't. It goes on and says, The woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, Please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, 
they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Now we see that this is how Solomon starts. He starts off well. He starts off strong, asking God for wisdom. We see this wisdom being displayed. And we see him accumulate just wealth and power and fame as he grows older. But you see, the book of Ecclesiastes is a book filled with controversy. It wasn't readily accepted into the Hebrew text as sacred scriptures because it had this raw honesty that seemed to contradict what the other scriptures taught. And so there was this hesitancy to accept this book and to say that it was sacred, but thankfully they did. And it's become something that I believe is powerful because I believe it relates to much of what we feel and understand today. It is something that I think we can look at and identify with as we look into these passages because we see Solomon in this book having a person of faith that is so weak, so paper thin that it can just be easily broken, but also a person who asks the haunting questions that each of us ask but are afraid to admit. And we see these extremes of just depth of wisdom and frailty of faith that causes us to tread on this thing cautiously. But, you know, I, I love controversy. I love reality. I love God invading human life. And it's never as neat and clean as we would like. It's like giving birth. If you've ever been there, it's a bloody mess but it is overwhelming. And the work of God is not as clean as we would like to make it sometimes. Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes we have to grope our way through the darkness to find the God who is there. And as I was going through this and reading some things on this book, this is a commentary, probably the most uh, well-known and accepted commentary uh, on the Old Testament. This is Kyle and Dalich. This is just on Solomon's books. This is just the Song of Songs, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. And just to give you an idea, just the introduction of the book of Ecclesiastes this is just the introduction right here. There's probably about 25 pages on the introduction of the book of Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Okay, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, what's going on? I, I want to read you a section of this because this is something of the controversy of this book that I want to dive into. They write, a New Testament believer would not be able to write such a book as that of Job or even that of Ecclesiastes without sinning against revealed truth, without renouncing the better knowledge, meanwhile, made possible. And so what they're saying is that 
a New Testament believer. That would be us here who have followed after and put our faith in Jesus Christ. They're saying we couldn't write a book like this because we would sin against our faith. And you see, as much as I use this commentary in the Old Testament and respect these scholars, I disagree with their conclusion because I believe that as Solomon has asked these questions, I know that I have struggled and wrestled with them as well as so many other believers that I know have done. And it is not a sin to struggle through questions. But there seems to be this idea that if you have questions of your faith, you need to just say, no, no, I just believe in God and I don't ask the questions. But what makes this book so powerful is that you are able to dive into these questions, wrestle them, find the God who is there, and deal with the things as God would want us to. And so instead of trying to pretend that these things aren't there, we have to be willing to say, these are questions that I have, but I'm just afraid to ask. These are questions that we all wonder about, but just don't want to say out loud because we're worried about what people will think. That they will say we're sinning against our faith because we have questions that we want answered. But in these questions, I believe we will find a depth and a reality to God that is necessary for us to grapple through. And so instead of being afraid of them, we need to embrace them. Let's look at first 11 verses in Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. One of the questions I think we often have in times of darkness or struggle is, God, are you there? I know you're supposed to be there, but I'm just wondering if you really are. The question asking ourselves, God, do you care? Are you involved with the things that are taking place in my life? And you see, God is not afraid of our questions, not one bit. God is not afraid of our doubts, not at all. He's big enough. His shoulders are big enough to handle your concerns, your questions, and he wants you to bring them to him. And so we start this book, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. You guys having a good morning so far? What does man gain from all his labor, which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear of its fill of hearing, 
What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. It sounds like Solomon's having a bad day here. It really sounds like he, he's struggling to something, and he is. 27 times we're going to see this phrase, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. <clears throat> and, and what's taking place is, is Solomon, seems to be, Solomon seems to be moving from this place of creation. But Solomon doesn't go back to the beginning, beginning. He just goes back to the beginning. He doesn't go to Genesis chapter 1, the beginning, beginning, where God created the heavens, the earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the sea and all that's in it. He doesn't go to that beginning where God says it is good, it is good, it is very good. He goes back to chapter 3 where from dust you were made and dust you will return. He seems to go back to this place of creation that was severed from its God. And you see, one of the interesting things in this book is, as Solomon is saying this idea here of under the sun, under the sun, unlike the book of Esther that doesn't mention God at all, but has God enveloped in it, Solomon mentions God throughout this book 41 times. He mentions God, but he uses the word Elohim. Elohim is the creator God. It is the God who is out there, but it is not the personal God, the name that they would use, Jehovah or Yahweh, the Lord, our God. It is the creator God. And Solomon is going from this place of under the sun, recognizing there is a creator God, but this creator God is not dealing with the circumstances. I believe there is a God, but I don't see God connected to what is happening. Has anyone ever been there? Has anyone ever had this understanding, well, I know I believe there's a God, but I just do not see him in my circumstances. And you see, I, I think that is something that we honestly go through and experience at times in our lives. We don't like to admit it because, oh no, then I am sinning against my faith. But the reality is, I believe there is a God, but I just, he's aloof. He's distant. From dust I was born, from dust I will return. And, and that's what I see. That is my experience and you see, when you are in a place where you have this belief in God, but God is detached and has no bearing on your life, then it's meaningless. It's meaningless. And in fact, that word meaningless or vanity, it, it means empty, whisper like air. It is actually the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 4 and given the name Abel. 
vanity, Abel. You see, Cain was the firstborn. He was the one who was to strike the promise. But then came Abel, and it's meaningless. That promise that we were hoping for, that this redemption would happen, I guess it's not going to happen. It's just meaningless. And so once again, we see that Solomon doesn't go to Adam, who was created in God's image, who had God's fingerprint on him. He goes to Abel, the son of a man, who was not the promise. And it was meaningless. It was meaningless. He talks in verse 4 about the creation, but it's, again, not the creation as we see in chapter 1. He talks about the things around him from generation to generation go on, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. And so here he goes into this idea of creation. Genesis 1 talks about the creation. God created the heavens, the earth. Created the, the sun, the lights to rule by day, and by night the stars. God breathed on the water and there was life. And in Genesis 1, we see that it was good. It had God's involvement. That God was very much apart and connected to his creation. It had intention. But here Solomon sees it's meaningless. It's apart from its creator. It has no purpose. It just goes on and goes on and goes on. And, and after he deals with this area of life and creation, he includes our lives in part of this meaninglessness. In verse 9, he says, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And he comes to this place where he just says, just as the earth is just going round and round, it's just this meaningless, has no purpose. Our lives are the same thing. It's just going on and on. We are just educated hamsters in this wheel, running this race, going and going and going, but we are going nowhere. Have you ever felt like that? Get up in the morning, same time. Press the snooze three times. Stumble into the bathroom where I use the same toothpaste that I've been using for years, brush my teeth the same amount of times, drink the coffee that I've drank out of the same cup that I drank, get in the car and drive the same route that I go to, go to that job that I hate, and I do this time and time again, and it's just meaningless. It's just meaningless. And we live a life and we think, man, I hate this life, but we do nothing to change this life. So this is the life we will live and we will live and it becomes meaningless, meaningless. And we wonder, what is the purpose? There is another Jewish philosopher who had a similar disposition to Solomon. He saw things much the same way. He said, more than any other time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness. The other to total extinction. 
Let us pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly. Woody Allen. (laughs) And you see, we, we seem to be in this place where we don't see any way out. We believe in God, but I don't see Him in my life, and so I'm just running in that wheel. I'm just the educated hamster, just going through the same thing, the same thing over and over again. And if the story of humanity begins in Genesis chapter 3 and 4, disconnected from its Creator, then there is no intention, there is no purpose, there is no God's design in all these things, then He is right. And everything is meaningless. If that is the case, then he has nailed it. He has hit the nail on the head. This is right on. If God is not there, if he's not involved with these things that he has created, then there is no purpose. And everything is meaningless. And you see, there are people who believe in Elohim. They believe in God. He is out there, but He is not my God. He is not a part of my life. And He's just in the distance watching, and I don't see His involvement. And they are in the same position. They have the same heartfelt, just gut-wrenching revelation that everything is meaningless. Because if this is the God I believe in, he's not involved, then what's the purpose? What's the purpose? Life is meaningless. It's meaningless. And then he goes on and he says in verse 9, there is nothing new under the sun. Now, have you ever heard someone talk like that? There's nothing new under the sun. And they talk about it as if it's a gift. Well, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. It's like, oh, good. I don't have to worry. How do you dress for new? You know, I'd have to change my wardrobe, have to change my hairstyle. But there's nothing new under the sun, so don't worry about it. I don't have to to create. I don't have to be involved in change because there's nothing new under the sun. It's just the same thing. Now, you've got to be careful. If you're going to take this, there's nothing new under the sun and apply it to your life. Remember, this is the guy who started off and said, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Are you sure you want to take his advice that there's nothing new under the sun? You need to be careful. And that's what makes this book so difficult. Is because we have to look at it and we have to say, okay, There's nothing new under the sun. Is that true? Or is that just Solomon kind of wigged out here? I just said Solomon is wigged out. (laughs) You know, my wife and I go through these conversations every now and then where I'll I'll say something and she'll just cringe. She'll go, don't say that. But it's true. This is, this is how I see it. This is the reality of what it is. Solomon was wrong. Well, just put it another way. Just say, you know, here he had the wrong perspective. No, he was wrong. See, because if he believed that there is nothing new under the sun, then we are stuck indeed. Remember last week we talked about can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard change his spots? No. If that's the end of the story, we are stuck. If there is nothing new under the sun, then we are going to be stuck in this routine and it's meaningless. Meaningless. 
meaningless. Don't have any worries, no responsibility to bring change. No, no carrots, nothing new under the sun. We can resign, breathe a sigh of relief. I guess I can keep going to work the way I've been going. I can keep leaving the life, living the life I've been living. Nothing new under the sun. I'm just going to stay on the wheel and keep going around and around and around. But he goes on and he says, can anyone say, look, this is something new? Yes, I can. I can say there is something new. And I'm not alone in saying this. God has said this throughout the scripture. He says in Isaiah 43, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. We talked about this last week. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am doing something new. Do you see it? Or do you see me as Elohim and not as Yahweh, the Lord your God? Maybe what has to happen is we need to change our position just like Solomon has to change his. We have to move from having this God who is not connected to our lives in any way to the Lord our God and see that he is doing something new. And maybe we're just not perceiving it. Maybe we're the ones that are blind because God is doing something new. We're just not aware of it. He also says in Jeremiah 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. By the way, that's why it's called the New Testament. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, God is making a new covenant. It says in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. By the way, Jesus said you cannot take New wine and put it in old wineskins. It's going to burst the old wineskin. I'm giving you a new wine. Doing something new. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Is God doing something new? Yes. We can say, yes, God is doing something new. The virgin birth, that was pretty new. God did something new there that hadn't been done before. God becoming man, walking among us, that was new. The creator of the universe being brutally murdered, hung on a cross, that was new. Rising again from the dead, conquering death, that was really, really new. God is doing something new. Can you perceive it? Are you aware of it? Giving us a new life so that we can get off this wheel that goes around and around and around. Get away from this God who is out there somewhere but is not real. And get to understand and perceive that there is a God who is active and working. Are you aware of it? Or is there nothing new under the sun? Ah, it's just the same stuff that I've heard before. The same thing 
maybe you don't perceive that God is really doing something new in our midst. Airplanes, those are pretty new. I think Solomon would have been, I was wrong. Internet, that was kind of new. Harnessing nuclear fission, that's pretty good. That's a new one. See, there, there is new. And you're saying, well, well, those are just, you know, inventions. Well, again, we talked about the virgin birth, God raising from the dead. God is doing a new thing. In fact, he says in Revelation 21.5, He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. You see, Solomon was stuck with a God who was distant and not involved. And we are going to go through this book and see why he was in this place. And in this idea of a God who is not involved with me, everything is meaningless. But with a God who is making all things new, it changes everything. You know, about 500 years after Solomon, Buddha came on the scene kind of with the same conclusion that we are in this cycle that everything just repeats itself through reincarnation and you will just come back again and again and again until you can become nothing when you become nothing then you get out of this cycle well the scriptures have a different story the scriptures have a story that god is doing something new and that you are not stuck but there is a god who cares and is able to do a new work in your life. He is able to make you a new creation. He is able to make all things new. You are able to see life new. You are able to see and understand the God who is doing something fresh. You are able to get up and have a life that is connected to the living God. You are not stuck in Genesis chapter 3, chapter 4. From dust you were made, from dust you will return. There is a God who now breathes a new life within us, who is involved with us completely, and we can get off the hamster wheel, and we can start living. But if God is just Elohim, the creator, who's out there somewhere, who's responsible for this mess, but is not involved with it, well, then it's meaningless. But if God is involved and is doing a new work, then we have hope. We have hope that will carry us past the hurt, the depression, and the meaningless things that we get to feel sometimes. And that's what we're going to be journeying through this book. Because these are the questions that we have asked. These are the questions that we have thought. And these are the questions that God answers in this book. And so we get to journey through it together. Let's pray. God, I think if we would be truthfully honest... There are many times where our words would echo what Solomon writes here. We just don't see the point. We wonder, are you there? Do you care? I feel like, oh, I've been there, I've done that. 
there is no vitality in our life. It is without purpose. And it becomes a burden that we can't bear and we just shout meaningless. It's all meaningless. There's nothing new under the sun. But God, we, we need to move into a place where you are not just the creator who has given up, but you are the Lord, our God, who is doing something new. And we need to be aware of it. We need to perceive it. We need to understand it. We need to not give in to this lie that there is nothing new under the sun. We need to get off this hamster's wheel and start walking with the God who makes all things new. And Lord, I pray that as we journey through this book, that our conversations will be like that of Solomon, honest, raw, open. And we will receive in return honest truth. Answers that really affect our lives. That we would stop pretending and start living. We'd start trying to act like we don't have doubts and instead pour our doubts, our fears, our burdens on the God who is involved with us who cares and is able to reveal himself in the midst of this world that is seemingly meaningless and make all things new. Make those things new within our hearts today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.